Well, I want to invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. And I have friends who have Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, then uh, I invite you to take one of the Bibles that uh, one of our friends here has for you. You can just raise your hand and somebody will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, you can just keep this. If you just need to borrow it for the evening, you can do that. But 1 Samuel chapter 3, starting with verse 1, reading through verse 20, you'll be able to hear that this text comes in two acts. And these two acts need to be read together to fully understand, if we, it is possible to do that, this text. So I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 3. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare and visions were quite uncommon. One night, Eli, who was almost blind by now, had gone to bed. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was sleeping in the tabernacle near the ark of God. Suddenly, the Lord called out, Samuel. Yes, Samuel replied, what is it? He got up and ran to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, Eli replied. Go back to bed. So he did. Then the Lord called out again, Samuel. Again, Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, my son, Eli said. Go back to bed. Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a message from the Lord before. So the Lord called a third time, and once more Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? Then Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling the boy. So he said to Samuel, go and lie down again. And if someone calls again, say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed. And the Lord came and called as before, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel replied, speak, your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. Samuel stayed in bed until morning, then got up and opened the doors of the tabernacle as usual. He was afraid to tell Eli what the Lord had said to him. But Eli called out to him, Samuel, my son, here I am, Samuel replied. What did the Lord say to you? Tell me everything, and may God strike you and even kill you if you hide anything from me. So Samuel told Eli everything. He didn't hold anything back. It is the Lord's will, Eli replied. Let him do what he thinks best. Another translation says, he is the Lord. Let him do what, what is good in his eyes. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. And all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we're calling this series Tales for Jewish Children and the Rest of Us, and we find ourselves in this season of ordinary time. And the the Revised Common Lectionary, as I said, which is our guidebook for preaching and storytelling, suggests a reading from this Old Testament book of Samuel. 
Now, in our Bibles, we have First and Second Samuel, but really, First and Second Samuel is just one long, continuous story that back in the day didn't fit on these large scrolls, so they split them in half and called them then First Samuel and Second Samuel. And the long story has about three main characters and the God with whom these three characters interact. You have the, the complicated, first you have the complicated figure that was the last great judge and the first to anoint the kings of Israel, and that's Samuel. And then you had Saul, who was the first reigning king of Israel, who was handsome and tall and was loved by all the girls, but he had this deeply complex character issue which led to his shameful demise. And then you have the third character, who is David, who was the shepherd boy turned giant killer, uh, who was loved by even more girls than Saul was. And he himself, then in the end, had his own lapse in judgment. And the whole thing is in disarray. But the story, before you have these three characters, opens up with Hannah, who is Samuel's mother. And she's first in sorrow and then in joy, she, she first experiences the curse and then the blessing of God. She's barren. She can't have babies. So then later on, God provides her a son. And, and, and in an introduction to this larger story, she sings this song. She writes this poem. And, and what she's doing is she's giving us a sneak peek into this whole large story so that we might be able to know what we're looking for as we read it. So according to Hannah at the beginning, the foreshadowing, she says it. She says that this God is one who opposes the proud and exalts those who are humble, is at work in spite of human evil, and will raise up the exalted king who will then lead God's people. Those three things. He opposes the proud, he exalts the humble, and he will he will exalt a king to lead God's people. You need to remember those three things as we tear into these passages and these pages over the next uh, month or so, and as we look at some of these people and some of these characters. So, 1 Samuel chapter 3, 1, uh, 1 through 10, is a Sunday school teacher's dream. For some of us, it's a story that we remember learning when we were just in grade school. The teacher would gather all the kids on the carpet, and then the teacher would tell us in detail the wonderful elements of the stories unfolding. Little Samuel being called and used by God is what this story is about, she'd say. And then she might show a video that's, that's kind of like this. It's cute, isn't it? What a, what a wonderful story Act 1 is. There is little Samuel, just a child, sleeping near the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle when he hears this word. And to hear a word from the Lord is a very rare and precious thing because there were so few prophets to declare it. And this call comes in from a voice who speaks his name, Samuel, Samuel. So young Samuel leaps out of bed, rushes to the side of the nearsighted priest Eli and says, I'm here. But Eli sends him back to his bunk, letting him know that he didn't call out. And a second time, young Samuel hears the voice. A second time, blind Eli sends him to bed. Then a third time, Sammy hears the voice and comes into Eli's room. Only now, 
Eli has gained some perspective. He might be seeing something for the first time in a long time. The hair on the back of his neck is standing up. Chills are running down his spine. He may know what's happening. This could be the voice of the Lord. So he tells Samuel in no uncertain terms, if you hear that voice again, you make sure to respond by saying, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And that, my friends, is when the Sunday school teacher brings this lesson home. The story is a slow pitch. It's ready to be knocked out of the park. Lessons could be taught like this, blindfolded and done with two hands tied behind the teacher's back. Here it is, the application. See, God still speaks. See, To be called by God is a wonderful thing. See, God even calls young children. See how obedient young Samuel is? He's not at all like like Eli's evil sons are. They wouldn't listen to their father, but Samuel did. He said, speak, Lord. I'm your servant, ready to listen. It is children's curriculum made in heaven, wrapped up all nice in a bow. Tie a knot on it, seal it, and deliver it. Swish, the bird is done. Because kids then, on the little carpet, are prompted with the question. It comes to them. Now, children, raise your hand if you, too, will listen to God's call. And, of course... Every hand on the carpet, every hand belonging to every juvenile that's in the room goes up. Pow, pow, like fish in a barrel, my friends. Fish in a barrel. This is the first part of the text, Act 1, verses 1 through 10. It's a God-in-a-box text. It's childish and friendly, and it's wonderfully predictable, just like we like God. It makes for good Christian art, (laughs) and it fits well into the pages of the children's Bibles that we hand out. It speaks to all the great things that we know about God and the things that we want from God. God comes in our dark. God still speaks. God will call those that no one thinks will be called. God is such a good guy in this act. It's a wonderful children's lesson until God, and mind you, it's God, at least according to this storyteller, drops a burden, a giant adult-sized burden, a a real-to-life suffering, life-and-death burden, a burden of, of... of a seismic proportion that cannot be compared to anything else on a little kid. You notice that we call this the call of God, but the Lord doesn't call Samuel to do anything. Eli is the one who wants to know the message from Samuel. Instead, here he is alone with the divine in the middle of the deepest night, and the Lord simply tells Samuel what he's going to do to the man that Samuel loves to the man who cares for Samuel. He says this, I am going to do something that will shake everyone in Israel up. I'm sick 
of what has been going on. The clock has run out. Time is up. I'm taking down Eli and his whole family. My judgment on him and his family will not be pretty because of their sins. He knew what was going on, that his sons were desecrating God's name and God's place, and he did nothing to stop them. So this is my sentence on the family of Eli. The evil has gone too far. There are no more second chances. God's message during this time is like the 9-11 of the 11th century B.C. And then, the voice doesn't say anything else. It's back to silence. And as I work over a text like this, I think, what kind of God is this? The historian Josephus said that Samuel was around 12 years old at this time, and this God burdens a child with a weight that adults cannot bear. In a single verse, the course completely changes directions. It goes from a nice children's lesson to an adult-sized, complicated scenario. This kind of stuff happens to children all the time. You know what? I, I think how we imagine these biblical texts come more from our desires about what we want life to be than an, eval- than an honest evaluation of what our life really is. I think we have in our minds this picture of a prepubescent Samuel in the tabernacle, warm and gentle, looking like a precious moment statue. But in reality, this, this might have been one of many, many, many sleepless nights for this kid. Holy alone, he's been sent away by his biological mother, rejected by his stepmother, ignored by his father. He's the responsibility of an aging priest that frankly isn't going to receive any Father of the Year awards. He's forced to sleep near the Ark of the Covenant, which isn't exactly like sleeping on a pile of pillows. And now he's facing the terror of a holy God awakened out of his silence. Barbara Brown Taylor paints what I think is an accurate picture of this scene. She says, At night he lay by the ark of God, the legendary throne of the invisible king Yahweh that Israel carried into battle at the head of her armies. It was reputed to contain all the sacred relics of the nation's past, a container of manna, Aaron's budded rod, the tablets of the covenant. Sleeping next to it had to be like sleeping in a graveyard or under a volcano. I was at a funeral this week. A 43-year-old dad passed away, leaving a lot of questions. And he left a young wife and three young girls. And at the the funeral, there was this, this massive sense of vulnerability. And like this story, 1 Samuel chapter 3, these children have been thrown into the clutches of an adult world. And I think to myself, what is the matter with God? This God calls Samuel and informs him of the horrors that are ahead. And we teach children that the prophetic call uh, that God places on Samuel's shoulders is is a light one, but in reality, it's, it's crushing. We know that Samuel eventually became the prophet of the Lord, and all around the region, people understood him to be uh, the prophet of God, this to be the case. But it seems that in this text, if we continue on as the lectionary asks us to continue on, it is full of chaos. 
it's like the ten, it's like the text ends inconclusively. The story that we read does not have any resolve. Samuel is burdened, Eli is toast, God stinks, amen. Sometimes these texts are bad news. They're not good news. So could we just, because we are into having real, real relationships and we're into having real and honest conversations, can we just pause for a moment here and admit the struggle that we have? I mean, I think in the middle of our pausing and our questions about having real conversations and real relationships, it's a good question to ask, why, why would it be that the community of faith over all of these years, over all of these centuries, why, why has the community of faith valued this story? Why have they told and continued to protect and preserve Act 2 as they want to pres- preserve and protect Act 1? Text, let's just be honest, texts like this aren't a good way to evangelize non-followers. So what is so important here uh, that we must read it and then we must keep on reading? What do these characters represent for us theologically? So I've got a few observations, and I may be wrong, but I suspect that I might be on to something. And uh, these are just a few of the observations that I've worked through as I've worked through the passage this week. So while the prophetic call of God in this text entails a crushing burden, sometimes bad news needs to be delivered. That is life. As, as a pastor, I've, I've had to deliver bad news before. Sometimes the news has been crushing. I've delivered bad news to parents. Uh, I've sat with people who were stunned and I've had nothing to offer except for the news. No words or perspectives or insights. Uh, I, I've simply been one to deliver the facts, a messenger of bad news, and I've had to have very tough conversations, and I would assume that I'm not the only one in this room, in this sanctuary, that's had to do the same thing. Sometimes I've had to do it with great fear. Sometimes the burden has been crushing On several uh, occasions, the bad news has left a wake of pain. I have been in situations, as I would assume that you have, uh, when the only way that I knew how to pray was the way in which Paul talks about it, which is with groans of anguish. Nothing I could do could tidy things up. So, in my 41 years on this earth, I've come to the conclusion that sometimes... As difficult as it might seem, uh, our choice is between an ugly decision decision and an uglier one. And in some situations, we're only given one option, and that's the ugliest option. These are my observations. So, with those observations, I think we need to remember a couple things, and I think that this text allows us to do this. I think we first need to remember this, that God is the main character in this passage. It's not Samuel, it's not Eli, it's not Israel's first king Saul or the giant killer David, 
And as the main character, capital M, capital C, God is not an inanimate or benign object. We need to remember that God is a free agent, capital F, capital A. Eli forgot about this. Eli's sons forgot about this. We have a tendency to forget about this. Because the voice is silent from time to time, we begin to imagine ourselves as the center of this world. But the ancients remind us that this is God's world. This is God's world after all. And God will speak and God will act when God is ready to do so. So with that in mind, that God is the main character in this passage... I think we also need to remember this, that God is the main character in our lives and our stories as well. And we have a tendency to forget this. Sometimes God remains silent and we don't see God until something good or something bad happens. God's voice is booming, his character revealed, his hand is moving, and the call in whatever way that might come is both exhilarating and frightening at the same time. It is a scary thing, they tell us, to fall into the hands of a holy God. We would prefer to be the center of our story, and we would prefer to have a very predictable world and a very predictable God. We want a God that died on the cross for our sins, erases our mistakes, come to our aid in the time of need. And this God does that. The story tells us that. David the king said, the Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing else that I need. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. However, While that is true, God is also a free agent, the center of our stories, the main character, and we don't feel comfortable with a God that is free, free to make decisions, free to make decisions on behalf of creation, free to disrupt the order of things, free to interrupt our lives for God's sovereign purposes. That is just too risky. We can't understand what this God does when this God does this. But the honesty of a, of a passage like this, the honesty of the scriptures, shine forth as it reveals both sides of this God, the one that protects and heals and ministers, and the one that has and acts with this long view that is beyond our perspective or our reason or our understanding. I think the other thing that we need to remember is this, that certain texts in the scriptures don't have answers, so it's okay if we don't either. We are a group of people that have said that we want to have these real conversations and real relationships. Another way to say that is we want to tell the truth. We want to talk about hard things. We want to think about hard things. We want to try to figure this out together. We do this Because the scriptures give us permission to do it. These sacred writings protected and preserved by the people of God for thousands of years that approach life with integrity and honesty. They do not shy away from the hard stuff and neither do we. And when it comes time, the scriptures scream out in grief. 
You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed to even pray. I think of the good old days long since ended when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never be kind to me again? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? The scriptures give us these words, and they They allow us to call out these cries. You know what we call this? Lament. When we look at the whole biblical text, I mean the whole thing, we find the stuff that gives us goosebumps like Act 1, and we find the stuff at the same time that horrifies us. The biblical writers did not shy away from the hard stuff in life or speaking out against this God or calling to this God in their misunderstanding. They didn't wrap everything up in a bow. They didn't give trite answers. And and they didn't give truisms. Everyone knows that in the midst of some horrible time, cliches are the last thing anyone wants or anyone needs. Sometimes all we need to do is just sit and lament. These are the things that we get to remember. The other thing is this. Because God has the long-range view. As Eli says with these final words of wisdom, God will do what is good in his eyes. The curse is coming down upon Eli, and it does come down upon Eli. And even Eli, who has known the joy of God, is in the hands of a holy God And makes this confession, God will do what is good in God's eyes. And honestly, while it may be hard for us to hear, this might be our good news. Remember what the thesis was in Hannah's poem for 1 and 2 Samuel? This God is one who oppresses the proud and exalts the humble, is at work in spite of human evil, and will raise up an exalted king to lead God's people. We continually find ourselves in a world that is hell-bent on doing evil and is hell-bent on participating in, in destruction that ignores the word of this main character as if this character doesn't exist. And this God, it would seem, according to the Scriptures, sometimes answers us in the language that only we humans know, destruction. Sometimes it would seem, according to the scriptures, that God's answers, answer to violence is violence. Sometimes God responds to evil with a seemingly evil act because sometimes it's the only thing that we can understand. But while that might be true, and it seems that it is, because we now are so many centuries farther down the road than what Eli was, we can see something that this blind priest couldn't. The way that this God oppresses the proud and exalts the humble is by raising up a king to lead God's people. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And the way of God's vengeance and violence and destruction, the way that God speaks our language is seen in a bloody, shamed, crucified Christ. This 
is what the Lord's Supper represents. This is what we come and participate in every week. He was a king sent to establish a new royal line of hope. And as Hannah says, he has come to set things right. The judges couldn't do it. Saul couldn't do it. David and his sons couldn't do it. But what they couldn't do, Jesus of Nazareth was capable to do. He made peace out of something that was horrifying. And his, because he was the, because he was the, the king, was a crown of thorns. His, was, his throne was a cross of murder. His royal sign was one of mockery nailed above his head. His subjects were those who hit him and made fun of him. God in Jesus is this double-edged sword. He is the I am the Savior and the why God have you forsaken me at the same time. He is both the answer and the question. He is the victory and the, and the lament. He is act one and act two. In Christ, God is both the deliverer of the message of judgment and the recipient of that judgment. He is the voice of condemnation and he is the recipient of that condemnation. He is the language that carries out the vengeance and he is the word that that vengeance is carried out upon. He is the one who gets to lash out and the one who at the same time took the lashes. And because of this, he is the one that when we bring these kinds of questions and we have this kind of grief, when we are his children thrown into a complex world, he is also the one that we get to trust with our sorrows. This is what we do when we, come to the communi- when we come to the communion table. We trust. We come and we approach him honestly with both our praise and our lament because as king, he's capable of leading and restoring a kingdom. This earth, even when it seems that he's the one who has created its destruction. It's the place where, this, is, this table is the place where we get to bring our whys and our how longs and, may it, and, and our may it be uh, as the Lord has said because he is going to do what is good in his eyes. When we come to this table, we get to bring our real stuff and meet with this real God. To come to this table and to partake of these elements is an act of trust with this holy God, and it is a scary thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Perhaps the God who is a free agent, who is willing to carry out destruction when it's needed, is a God who, at the same time, is a free agent and would be willing to be a redemptive main character in our stories. So, I want to invite you to come to this table as a way of trust. Justin, if you'd help me. And I want to remind you, you have heard me say this many, many times, but I want you to remember this story, and I want, you, I want to remind you of what happened here. So at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, my friends, this is my body which is broken for you, and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. 
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, the new covenant that comes in my blood. I'm doing something new. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Anyone who places their trust in this holy God is invited to this table. This God of Act 1 and Act 2, this God who is the main character of this text, this God who is the main character of our stories, this God who is capable of destruction and the God who is capable of redemption, I invite you to trust Him. I want you to know that there are no barriers here. This is an open table for all who are open to trust this God. And so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, but when you come, I want you to come down our center aisle with your hands cupped. Come ready to receive that which is all of God, that which is good, and that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, then dip the bread into the cup and be thankful. If you cannot make it down our aisle for any reason, just wave your hand at Justin over here and he would be glad to come serve you. Would you allow me to pray? May we know that as we trust in this holy God, who is a free agent. May we know that this God is both the one who destroys and the one who builds back up. The God of Act 1 and the God of Act 2. We pray that you would give us vision, vision that Eli did not have, but seemed to come and realize vision so that we might see the long view and know that perhaps, just maybe, in the middle of what we deal with, you might be working on our behalf. This is what we hope for. This is what the message of the communion table is. This is what we see in the cross. This is what we know of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So we receive these with glad and sincere hearts. And it is your name that we pray. Amen. You may come when you're ready.